Hi, everybody. This is Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. We all know that getting your first film made is hard. With the added pressure of expectation, getting a second made can be even harder. And then there are the Julie Cohens of the world. Cohen is a documentary filmmaker who's completed and distributed eight feature docs and five shorts in the past 10 years, and won three Emmys along the way. And this is after a prolific career as a producer at NBC, where she produced more than 20 hour-long and two-hour programs for Dateline. Cohen's latest film, available on iTunes now just in time for Veterans Day, is called American Veteran. It tells the story of Army Sergeant Nick Mendez, who was paralyzed from the neck down by a massive improvised explosive device in Afghanistan in 2011 when he was only 21 years old. The film, which follows Mendez through the five-year period after his injury, was recently certified by the veterans' right group Got Your Six as one of their six certified films for fair depiction of veterans. I think you'll really enjoy my wide-ranging discussion with Julie Cohen about tips she learned at Dateline that help speed up production, how to reach niche audiences to market your work, and steps for sustaining your career in our unpredictable business. Hi, Julie, welcome to the show. Hi, Liz, thank you so much for having me here. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, We have a lot to talk about today in terms of of your uh, long and varied career. So I wanna start where we are now and move backwards, especially because this show is happening right around Veterans Day and your current project is related. So can you talk just a little bit about the current film? Sure. My current feature doc is called American Veteran. It is the story of a guy who, when he was 21, um, was in Afghanistan as a soldier for the army, uh, was paralyzed from the neck down um, by an IED. And we kind of follow his story from the five years following his injury to today when you hear that, you think like, wow, that sounds like a super heavy, depressing story. And while it is sobering, I think that um, Nick, our character, is one of the most upbeat, interesting, fun to be with, kind of both as a human being and as a movie viewer, people that you could want to meet. The story is also a love story. It's about the medical caregiver that he meets in the VA hospital. Uh, falls in love with and, (laughs) spoiler alert, uh, ultimately marries. And so I kind of think, actually, I'm a big love story fan. Like every film I've made, I think, is a love story in a certain way. I think I I wish every story could be a love story. So I, I guess I always gravitate towards that. So, you know, heavy subject matter, um, but not, you know, I think the trick of taking a topic like that is trying to make a film that's not unbearable for the for the viewer. There have been some great films on this subject, um, on the subject of the veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, some about disabled vets, some about vets with PTSD, um, many of which are great to watch, some of which are sort of, I'd put in the brilliant but unbearable uh, category. Um, and I was trying to make something really watchable and even fun to watch. I also think all movies should be comedies to a certain extent. So uh, there's some, uh, should be might be a big word. (laughs) Uh, But like, it's great, it's great to find the comedy in anything you can find it in, I'll say that. So I hope I've done a little bit of uh, both of those with this film. That's so interesting. I don't often hear doc makers thinking of their work as either love story or a comedy. And you work, you know, you've done some pretty serious subject and some lighter subjects. Yeah, I've done a bunch of serious subjects. I've made films about um, classical opera singers from black townships in South Africa. Um, I made a film called The Sturgeon Queens about the sort of four generations of the immigrant Jewish family that runs the smoke fish store uh, Russ and Daughters on the Lower East Side. Um, I've made films about you know, racism. I worked for Dateline NBC for a long time and did crime stories. Um, But, you know, there's just things that you gravitate to in a story, whether it's a book or a fiction narrative film or a doc. And I, I gravitate, I would say I gravitate towards, towards love and comedy. And even though, even if that's like not what you'd associate with my subject matter, I try to make that part of the film as, as often as I can. So an American veteran, how do you pull out those 
more like relatable threads in such a, a tricky topic. Yes. Well, you know, part, this was a verite film where we spent a lot of time, um, mostly I, I spent a lot of time and to a certain extent my field producer uh, taking turns just going and doing two or three day visits with our characters, um, which we did I think like 12 or 13 times over over the time that we were that we were filming. So, you know, comedy comes up in day-to-day life. My sort of like uh, pro tip is when I'm screening stuff that we've shot when I'm logging it and I actually often transcribe stuff myself but even if it's um you know e- either me or my field producer transcribe pretty much everything when I'm going through the transcripts um and watch and and screening the film I do I do a little thing to denote like oh this was a great moment but I also actually have taken to writing LOL in the script and then as we structure the film together I actually go back do a computer search through my transcripts, looking for every LOL, trying to think, can I I get this moment in the film? Wow, that's a great tip. Um, And you're right. I mean, life is funny. That's part of, I guess, why being a documentary filmmaker is, is interesting. Definitely. And, you know, part of it, I guess, is the experience that I've had going from someone who was mostly making docs for television to making docs that I'm traveling around with for live screenings, whether it's in festivals or, um, you know, in the case of my Sturgeon Queens films at JCCs or the current film where we've been bringing to a lot of veterans groups. Like when you're sitting at a live screening, it's really good to have funny moments in your film. Like you really (laughs) feel like you really feel the audience is in it. Like it just it just it just really makes you realize how important those moments are and how much it's sort of drawing someone into your story if they're laughing along with your characters. So that's when I started this LOL thing. I love that. Maybe we'll title the podcast, How to Make Your Audience LOL with Julie Cohen. Um, So with this, again, with this particular film, what did you, what surprised you about the American veteran experience in spending so much time with your subject? You know, I think I had partly had the same problem that a lot of civilians have vis-a-vis um, the military and vets, um, experiences that I really didn't know that much about because um, I've done a number of stories on that subject, both as a news person and, and a doc person. But in like my personal life, um, I don't have a lot of combat veteran friends, although I've made some in the course of making this movie. But I guess I sort of had the tendency that I think a lot of people have to sort of go in a stereotypical direction of thinking of someone as either being superhero, like, oh my God, so patriotic and brave and is like jumping on grenades and is like the best, most superhuman person you ever met. That's like one end of the spectrum. Or the stereotype that veterans themselves dislike the most, which is, you know, broken, uh, incapacitated, unable to carry on with life. And, you know, here is Nick, the star of this film, um, and he'd like me saying that because he said he wanted me to make him a movie star, so I'm sort of doing the best I can with that, um, who is like neither of those things. He's, he's not a hero. He doesn't see himself as a great patriot. He joined the army because it seemed like the best career move for him at the time, and in a lot of ways he, he was right about that. You know, nor is he broken and finished like yes he doesn't have much use of his arms or legs but he's managed to build a pretty incredible life he has a great time he's super active he learned how to do a lot of things that he didn't know how to do um you know things you might not think you could do with your mouth like playing video games and fishing both of which um he does in in the film like just started learning how can okay how this this is my situation where do I go from here? Which, of course, you know, you're always sort of looking for metaphors when you're making a documentary. That's like the metaphor for all of us. We have situations, you have disadvantages, you have obstacles that are in your way. Like you could get completely stuck in them or you can think like, how do I move forward? What can I, how can things be as good as possible given what the obstacles and limitations are? Um, you know, I said to him a few times during making, it would come, it would come up like, wow, you know, Nick, you've got such a great attitude. And his answer to that was like, 
I've always had a great attitude. You know, people used to say that to me when I was a kid also. He didn't have the easiest life. His family had a pretty tough time. They didn't have very much money. Um, and uh, he got kicked out of school for, for smoking pot uh, for high school. You know, like things were kind of going badly and, you know, so, sometimes of his own making, sometimes because of his circumstances. But like he kind of figured out ways to make the best of things. That's just that's just kind of his way. Not that he was never um, bothered or depressed by being paralyzed. He was, but he kind of figured out how to get through that and how to make how to make his life as good as it can be. And right now, it's like pretty good. Yeah, I think people will be you know surprised when they see the film um, because of all of the elements that you talked about. It's it's um, I feel like a lot of documentary filmmakers are trying to uh, subvert certain stereotypes you know, in their work or make a universal story out of something specific and it applies here. I think whenever you really get to know someone, stereotypes just fall away, whether that's what we might assume about each other because of race or gender or religion or age. Like you have these things in your mind about what it is to have someone else's life. But then once you're in a mode of really spending time with someone the way you are when you're making a verite doc, or even, you know, spending time, spending an hour and 15 minutes in a movie where it's been kind of curated down, like you're like, oh, you know what? That person is an individual and like their life isn't exactly what I expected it to be. And, you know, that's why it's really fun to do the work we do and why it's fun, I think also, why it's fun and illuminating to watch docs. I mean, my, I, I like I like watching documentaries probably more than I like making them. It's a lot easier. Um, <laughs> that is for sure. And, uh, you know, but it, it is kind of my, like, I, I, I love a true story. Yeah. So taking a step back um, into your broader career, you mentioned you're, you're sort of coming up in television. So talk a little bit about that background and also what you then brought from it into independent producing. Yeah, well, um, I worked um, in in TV news and storytelling for uh, for quite a while, um, both at uh, Court TV, actually, where I started my career uh, right around the corner from where uh, where we're recording this right now, um, uh, telling uh, crime stories and trial stories, and then for Dateline NBC, where I was a producer. Um, doing almost exclusively long form, like one and two hour, uh, some news stories, some pop culture stories, but almost all crime stories. Um, and you know, the kind of crime stories that Dateline is so great at, um, many of which have to do with spouses killing one another, frankly, which is as someone, when you're writing and producing that material, really, really hard, hard material, like a, a, a much more difficult and depressing um, spe spe spending time kind of living in those stories than it was in the veteran story. So that's just one, one you know, when there's hatred and bitterness and criminal mischief and uh, brutality like that, you know, that's that's a hard thing to spend to spend time to, with. Um, I imagine harder to find those love and comedic moments that you gravitate towards. Yes, although, you know, certainly you could find some of that. There was some, there was some, you could usually, most people have some humor in their lives or some, some love in their life. I really feel like the basic storytelling process is pretty much the same. The reason that I left NBC to do other things and specifically to make docs was I kind of wanted to take the skills I developed for storytelling and apply it to the kind of stories that I really felt like I wanted to tell. Um, you know, true crime has gotten so huge, um, even, uh, you know, as with a whole new audience recently. Which I'll mention, it's yeah. funny that we're recording yes. in Midtown Manhattan right now, <laughs> yes. and there's a police siren in right. the background appropriately. So which skills do you think you really sharpened having to turn things around for television? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think TV news producing is a really, really good background for documentary filmmaking. I have a number of other friends who've taken the same path that I have, and I just think it, it helps because it kind of frees up your sense of what is possible in a very short time. Um, you know, when I first got into the doc world, I was in a situation where, uh, where an executive person found out a deadline had been moved up and was like, oh my God, you know, 
all we have is like a radio cut and now our film has to be on the air um, in two months versus like in two and a half months. Like, can we do that? I'm like, are you kidding? Like, we could put this on next week if we had to. Like, you could, you know, you could, if you, if you need to put an hour on in a day like it seems impossible but it can be done i've seen it done and i've been part of making it happen so i actually feel like the feel like those uh skills are really um helpful and just you know the skill of telling a story and making wanting to make sure that your audience stays with it in network tv world you're you need your you know some people are going to be tracking your ratings minute by the, the minute by minutes as as it's called so like the 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 obsession with keeping people interested you know i think that can be taken too far but i also think it's as a as a viewer of things i think it's good like i want to feel like the author of a work like the filmmaker is trying to keep me interested like I've seen films where it didn't seem like they were trying that hard and you know I, I'm I'm a fan of accessible art I don't like docs that are so rambling that you're like okay what's even the point here I get that it's artistry or it's beautiful but it's not you know I mean the the best the best films are really riveting and you really care what happens next. I mean, look at, you know, the uh, one film everyone's talking about now that I just saw last weekend, Jane, like, you know, like you're, you're sort of in it every minute. You're wanting to know like what her relationship is going to be like with the monkeys. And you're wanting to see what is going to happen in her, what's going to happen for her career, how that's going to be taken. How's the, how's the love story unfolding? There's comedy and romance and, in that, it's just like you, you sort of feel like you're in the hands of someone who's trying to shape something in such a way that you'll find interesting. Like he could have just uh, apparently, I forget, was there 140 hours worth of monkey and lady footage that he had? He could have just like thrown a whole bunch of stuff. But no, he shaped it to make it really work for, for the viewer. And I, I appreciate that. And just to contextualize for our listeners, this is a new film by Brett Morgan where he uh, had all sorts of hours and hours of archival footage of Jane Goodall and then um, was granted this footage and and tied it together with an interview, a, a modern yes, interview with exactly, her. exactly, exactly. But um, created a story uh, with it. So right. I'm, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm yes, really yes, eager to. Yes, definitely. Uh, so wh- what are some tactics that you develop to make sure that you are keeping people hooked throughout? Do you do lots of um, work-in-progress screenings, or how do you how do you know? Um, I have not been a big work-in-progress screening person. I do show f- stuff, although I m- more, more recently I, I did that and found it quite effective. I certainly show stuff for, to my husband from time to time. I try to, like, step back from it and think and, and come to it like an outsider, which... I feel like it's something I'm capable of doing, although you can never do it thoroughly. It's worth always showing something to a few trusted people who don't know the story too well, who'll be like, oh, wait a second, that was his uncle? Like, I thought that was his stepfather. You know, it's like you, you things that you just aren't going to get um, uh, in your own project when you know the story so well. Um, you know, one trick I guess I I try to do is to when you have a number of characters is to kind of as you're shooting a verite thing to sort of start seeing what characteristics you're finding in characters and then try to shoot and edit for that um like I actually um especially in a multi-character story, I try to, I'll, I'll like write down little character sketches of the various people like, oh, this is the shy one who's a little bit nervous and isn't quite sure if she's good enough to, to you know, cross these hurdles. And, you know, this character is like brash and comedy. Like as I'm seeing that, as I'm getting to know, because everyone is such a complicated mishmash of characteristics. Um, but see what you're shooting, look at your footage, see how the people kind of seem to you. And then um, I've even told both my, if, if I'm shooting stuff myself, I just tell myself, but if I'm working with a crew, I tell my 
camera crew that like oh you know we really noticed that this uh violinist i'm just thinking of an example of something i did about the budapest orchestra a few years ago this violinist is really shy and nervous like make sure you're filming for that like in moments where she's nervous make sure we're rolling and catching that because that's you know i'm not making up stuff about the people i'm waiting till we've shot a little to find what i'm seeing but then uh you know we're sort of choosing for that so that to help the, guide the viewer through that. And, you know, you're wanting your characters to kind of evolve through the course of a story. So, you know, you help that out in the editing process. Like someone you're emphasizing, maybe you're emphasizing their timidness at the beginning, and then there's a big moment where they kind of come, come out on stage and suddenly they're shining brightly. Like you're trying to show how that really happened and catch every moment where that happened and edit for every moment of that happening. Yeah, it makes sense. And you hope that people are going to surprise you, I guess. Um, Another question about that transition from the news world, the Dateline world, to the feature world. You mentioned that um, there are, like, the timelines are pretty different. And that's sort of amazing because, you know, now suddenly you have all the time in the world. But, of course, you can't take it because you also have to make a living. Right. But um, what are some of the kind of time-saving shortcuts that you learned Uh, when you were out in the field for Dateline? Well, you know, I think the big piece of advice that carried over so well from when I was doing things on a really strict timeline to when I have a little more freedom, but it'd be better to stay on the strict timeline anyway, is to not hide from your own footage, to not be afraid of, you know, (laughs) there's a... uh, it's so intimidating for there's so many there's so many stages to the process that like if you've really thought through how how terrifying they are you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning but um you know one is just the moving forward with doing something but then once you're out there shooting I feel like you're always kind of worrying to yourself like okay do I have a story and what is the story here and like I really especially if it's a verite thing, try to go out of my way to be watching the footage and kind of living with it as soon as possible, just so I can start organizing and thinking to myself, you know, because I think the thing that keeps one from doing that is the fear of like, oh my God, what if there's not a story there? But like, once you watch it, I feel like I'm almost told, I'm almost always really pleasantly surprised. Like, oh, look, there is that story. And I didn't even know that. Or things that you were in the room when they happened, or even if you were literally operating the cameras, as I did a lot with American Veteran, like, oh, I, I totally didn't notice something that happened when I was sitting right there and then I watch it I I always feel like I get to know the characters so much better in you know screening the footage and in the edit room than I ever did when I was in their presence which is a weird thing about life um like maybe we would all know each other better if we were running around making documentaries about each other all day but um you know I feel like having that experience of sort of trying to shape little pieces of the story from early on is what I learned to do at NBC and what I'm still doing now like there wasn't really the luxury of like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to go out and be filming for this long, long period of time before we start worrying to, about editing. Like we were, we were starting to script like pretty early on after after shooting. And I think that helps move things more quickly. And then it gets gets you to a place where as you do later interviews and as you do later shooting, you kind of know a little bit more what you need and you don't have to go crazy shooting everything like you make a list of things that really have to get covered or transitions if you're if you if you're not working with a you know if there's no narration which most of my recent films haven't been haven't been narrated films but um you know that you you there's certain things you're going to need like transitions have to happen so you (laughs) try to make sure you know what you need so that then you can make sure that it happens okay so talking about your your broad swath of work you know you've already mentioned several of the topics that you've covered and I think with any doc person, I mean, you often people will find themselves in some sort of uh, like topic area. So maybe they don't have to start from scratch each time. But most of the time, we're all starting from scratch each time. And you really are jumping from these topics that have very little relationship to each other. So do you approach every film sort of the same way or completely new? Like, how do you get into a new project? Yeah, you know, um, often um, I read a book. 
<laughs> like I feel like that's kind of a like I the, the, the good thing about the good thing about making a documentary versus maybe uh my my husband has written a bunch of nonfiction books and I feel like to write a nonfiction book about something you really have to know so much to make a doc you don't need to know as much you need to know something um but you can plunge in without knowing too much but I actually do feel like there's some you know gra there's some it helps to ground you to like know a little bit at least um you know the first um after I left NBC the first doc I made was for um WNET the New York PBS station had me do the two-hour companion piece to Ken Burns's the war series about World War II I did a basically a New York version of that uh story um called New York Goes to War and I was like you know what I, like I'm sure I read some stuff about World War II in elementary school in high school too maybe I never took a college course that covered it. I was like I really don't know that much about World War II I'm gonna make a two-hour documentary right. about this like but the but that has a script that I'm writing so I just like you know went to Amazon and ordered actually a very good book by a uh, professor that was called The Story of World War II, like a 700-page book that was sort of a combination of narrative but with lots of sort of first-person accounts. And it really went through the whole it went through the whole chronology of the war and gave me the basics on like, okay, this is what was going on in Europe and this is what, uh, this is what was happening in the Pacific and this is what the Battle of the Bulge was. Like, I forever hate everyone that uses the, like every local news person that uses the Battle of the Bulge as like a, you know, a stupid headline for a dieting story like once you read what the battle of the bulge really is like, like shut up with cute. that yeah. yeah totally not cute but um you know and I actually felt like I mean maybe that sounds maybe that sounds kind of like surfacey to be like oh well she read one book about it but at least it was something I mean you got to start somewhere and I felt like that was enough and then since then I sort of that's sort of been my like habit when I'm doing a new subject matter like I read one book and then I start, uh, I pick out a good book. Seems that it seems like it's uh, on on track. And um, I mean, actually, the um, the American veteran and Iraq and Afghanistan situation was actually a little different because I had read several books on, on the subject matter by the time I started. And I had done, you know, aside from making docs, I do a bunch of freelance news work. And even going back to when I was at NBC, had done a bunch of stories about, about veterans and about military. And I actually had always thought, like, oh, I really want to make a feature doc about this partly because it is a subject that people are that civilians are kind of afraid of and don't want to touch and i just sort of feel like you know we as a society actually need to think about this like it's sort of and and kind of those of us who have storytelling skills like okay that's something that we should be trying to tell stories about people have done it before and i feel like people should keep should keep doing it. I hope it's not the last film that I make about um, about veterans, frankly. Um, and you know, I like to see work that uh, that other people have done on that subject. And I just think it, you know, just think it's something that's um, that's good to tell stories about. So I so I didn't know something about that, but you know, uh, swing dancers in the 1940s. Like I, you know, I think I read read a book that de dealt with that when I was making some films on on that subject. So you know, did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Well, you referred to to PBS coming to you for the first film, your first film out of the gate as an independent, and then it sounds like, and that was a while ago, and, and it sounds like American Veteran came from your heart, your interest area. So yes. what's the sort of breakdown? How many of these, how many of your projects come to you, and how many do you come to? Yeah, I'd say it's been somewhere around half and half, but I'm trying to move more in the direction of um, films that I want to make. I kind of have my work life and my teeny production company, um, which is me and one other full-time person and then just other freelancers as, as things um, require. Um, I kind of try to make that breakdown between projects that are the things I really want to do and projects that are helping bring in income and I try not to force those things to mix because that's just a recipe for unhappiness like I've done a, all kinds of uh, projects just because they seem like they're going to bring in some money and we all need money 
then I have, and I, and, and one, when I'm doing those kind of projects, I'm trying to, I'm working really hard at them. I'm bringing whatever skills and creativity I have. I'm trying to keep the client really happy, but I'm not thinking like, oh, this is like the great passion of my heart. Like, no, this is how we're trying to pay the rent check. Then, you know, then there's the projects that I'm really like dream of doing, like, um, you know, like the Sturgeon Queens, my smoked fish movie, or like American Veteran. And those are like, okay, I really want to make this movie. I'm going to try to figure out how we can, how we can like not go into like heavy debt on it, but I'm not necessarily thinking that this is going to be like a great windfall. Like I think some documentary filmmakers make the mistake of thinking that they're going to get rich making documentaries. Um, and you know, it's not, not like, it's just like, that's very hard for that to happen. Yeah. And I like, and I think you're, life is better if you're not even tr like that's not really what I'm going for even like I'm trying to make the films that you know some some little projects I'd like to make and at the same time I'm trying to do some things that will also bring in some money so that I'm able to do other things and if you know if if, if not you know not every project is gonna you know or to this point no project is going to sort of serve both functions like oh we made all this money and also it was like exactly what i dreamed of like that's not quite how the world works but that's fine like and it can still be a goal it can still be a goal absolutely uh, so but it's it it seems as though pbs is involved on either end sometimes they're coming to you sometimes you're showing you know you've had the good fortune of showing your independent work that was generated by you on PBS, and I think for a lot of doc filmmakers, we understand that PBS still is a place that, you know, is one of the few places in the U.S. that broadcasts docs, but it feels quite um, hard to reach, and yet you have this long relationship with them. So can you talk a little bit about, I guess, what you'd call the PBS system and what, what working within that is like? Yeah, you know, I can't even pretend to thoroughly understand um, the PBS uh, system. I mean, like a lot of things in business world, it has to do with um, personal relationships. I know Neil Shapiro, the president of the New York PBS station from when he was um, the executive producer of, of Dateline. So truthfully, in terms of um, getting things picked up for air on PBS, I mean, you know, one, one thing that one needs to understand about that is that um, there's not necessarily a big pot of money with which they're acquiring films. Not to say that they have, you know, some of the big series don't pay something, but even that is not that much for a for a film that exists. If the film is, if a film's pretty good, um, you can, and you have, you know relationships that that I have that you can get somebody to look at and consider it and get it on the air that that can happen but um these are in terms of things that are my personal work these are films that I've um gotten funding for that I've gone out and done what you do whether it's foundation grants I've done a bunch of those whether it's crowdfunding I've done that before um whether it's going to various individual uh contributors um you know i mean i've done everything that I've, I've tried pretty much everything you can do to fund a film a lot of it successfully like more more failures than successes when you try but if you're like if you're motivated enough eventually you'll come up with a way to pay for the movie but like once you know so it's not it's not like this great thing of like oh i'm going to pbs with like a concept and they're saying like great we'll fund that and it gets on the air that hasn't happened to me they've come to me and said okay we want a like that new york goes to war film like oh we need um, we want a two-hour film on the New York City experience as it relates to World War II. The reason that I got that assignment was my experience in news, because they're like, we need a two-hour doc, and we've got about three and a half months to make it. Most documentary filmmakers would be like, oh my God, what are you talking about? Where I was like, oh, three and a half months, like, that's so <laughs> much time, great. Um, so... Uh, so the, the, those commissioned projects, um, they, they ha have come to me, but if it's something that's like my own passion projects, I, I have not yet figured out how to get something paid for, um, in advance, um, at least through the, you know, through the PBS, uh, system, but I've had the great good fortune for, um, for New York PBS and a number of other PBS stations to air, uh, films that I've, that I've made, so... 
that's you know that's that's good we all want the the magic bullet or whatever but it just doesn't quite exist um so when when we first started talking about having you on the show you had mentioned this idea of niche filmmaking and i think you know for folks that have now been listening to us for the last half an hour they'll get some sense of what that means in your context but how would you describe niche filmmaking yeah, you know, I don't feel that making that that niche filmmaking there's no such thing as niche filmmaking from the making of the film perspective. There's niche marketing. Um and there's like going out there for a niche audience um which I have I would say almost I've kind of gone out of my way to try to do that because after all you're trying to you know, you're trying to get your film out there in the world to people who would be interested in seeing it. Um, and in the case of um, Sturgeon Queens, my um, film, which had a actually sort of two niche audiences, the Jewish niche audience and the food niche audience. And um, both of those niches in the documentary world are pretty serious. I had no idea when I made that film how many Jewish film festivals there are, but there are, you know, more than a hundred. I mean, you know, because you've you've made a niche Jewish film uh, yourself. So um, that was great. It also had the just from the really practical um, perspective, the Jewish film festival circuit, which is big. It's quite well organized, and unlike a lot of festivals, which are like free floating organizations that are barely, you know, that are so on a shoestring, most of the Jewish film festivals are affiliated with their local JCC. So there's actually a staff that works at the place and um, most of them will pay not a huge fee, but will pay a fee of a few hundred dollars to screen your film. And like that, that helps. I mean, you know, I, I made a decision that like, you know, this is my audience and also they're quite, um, you know, the Jewish film festivals are really well attended and, um, you know, you get really a great crowd of film enthusiasts going to them. So passionate audiences. Yeah, really passionate audiences. So um, I um, basically uh, started submitting that film to a few Jewish film festivals. Once a couple of them took it, it got, they got, you know, it got fairly easily, the word kind of spread and it got picked up um, other places. And then I got a distributor uh, through that. And I felt like that whole experience went really well and kind of got my film out there to the audiences that were gonna love it the most um so that felt like a good uh, a good experience to me um and so i i'd say i did something a little bit similar even with american veteran because there is a world of uh military film enthusiasts there is a gi film festival there's actually more than one where um my film screened and actually won a good uh, award there their founder's choice award and that got the interest of um a number of different uh like the new york city veteran services um got in touch with me and started doing screenings i'm now have hooked up with um the elizabeth dole foundation uh hidden heroes military caregivers um they're doing screenings in a bunch of places um in that case um you know i really kind of think of that as like a worthwhile thing to do i haven't asked them for any screening fees or anything but i feel like it like gets the word out in the community and then we have a um the film got picked up by freestyle digital media that's distributing it starting now um, when this airs, uh, so um, which is uh, an LA-based uh, distribution company that just happens to have an interest because a couple of their their acquis- their main acquisitions person just happens to think military stuff is an important issue. So she's gone out of her way to acquire some uh, some military-themed um, films, and she found me my my advice and my rule of thumb about distribution this is also kind of true about media and about festivals too is to like i'm much more interested in doing business with people that are interested in me than trying to push myself on people who don't want me there are distributors out there um i have in the past i've tried to get people interested like oh such and such a distributor like oh this would be great for you and like I, it's, I just find it hard to break through, whereas the people that come to me are the ones who are really 
who seem like they're the most interested. And that's, you know, I mean, it's, you have to be in a pretty good position actually for people to come to you, first of all. So that's, so that's great. But, you know, I was very psyched at this film. Um, you know, I had a few different distribution offers and ended up deciding I wanted to work with Freestyle because they seemed like they were super enthusiastic about military and veteran themed films for the same reason that I wanted to make the film. They want to distribute it. So. And to your overall point, I'll often say this kind of thing to younger filmmakers who are frustrated that they're not getting recognized by Sundance. And it's like, well, you know, most people aren't. But can you find a festival uh, or an outlet that, you know, has already an audience that's interested in what your film is about? And suddenly you can make a lot bigger wave than you ever could have as an unknown at Sundance. Exactly. I mean, I've been making films for a long time. Um, I... Oh, maybe at the very beginning I might have submitted to Sundance. Then I kind of didn't for a while. Just certainly didn't submit, submit this film. It didn't seem like, you know, I, I went out of my way for American Veteran to submit the film to festivals that seemed like they had a pretty heavy social, uh, you know, social issue um, wanting inspirational films component. Um, an example of that would be um, Heartland Fe- Fe- Film Festival in Indianapolis, where we just screened a couple weeks ago. I had I had noticed that they seem to, you know, they're pretty big established festival, and they seem to have a they really want issue films that mean something and inspire and and uh, that sort of thing. So I submitted there. We're going to the Virginia Film Festival um, coming this week. We've I think we've been about like 25 uh, festivals, but like m- most of them either um, either they really like social issues, either they're military oriented or maybe I know someone there or there is a um, geographic connection between a character and the film. Um, we had a main character from Kansas City, so I submitted to and got into the Kansas City Film Festival. We had a veterans group that builds homes for disabled vets that's based um, right near Providence, Rhode Island. So I submitted and got into the Rhode Island Film Festival. And when I submit, I write them this long letter saying like, oh, and this is you, this is the group, homes for our troops, they're right near you, they'd all come, whatever, and they did. And I mean, that that whole, you know, it's it's not easy getting into festivals, but I, I'd say I... I was batting about 500 if that's at the I think I got it got into about half of the festivals that I submitted to for this so that that seems like a pretty good uh seemed like a pretty good average but I I targeted it pretty closely to there had to be some real connection between my film and what the festival um is all is all about you know when you, if you have if you have a film that's like a lot more commercial or that has access to a celebrity that everybody cares about then you're in a different uh then you're in a different different position but just like you know i try to be realistic and think like oh what what does this festival think it's about and what what do they want and go in that direction well it sounds like the the niche audience approach could benefit your film in a lot of ways. So what are some other ways, if someone's working on a film and they feel like they have a niche audience for it or a niche audience to just start the wave for the film, what are some other ways besides festivals that you might suggest you know, reaching out to that niche or connecting with that yes. niche? Yes, I mean, the, the, the beauty of the current social media world, you know, start connecting with your potential audience online. Um, I totally did that for American Veteran. We're going to see how wh- how that all connects when, uh, as the film right now goes into digital distribution. Um, my field producer editor, Nadine Nator, uh, made us a minute and 10 second social, ma- social media Facebook video, the, you know, the kind you see that's like streamed on Facebook that just, you know, basically tells the story in a minute and a, and change. Um, there's music to it, but it's not about the sound and sound bites. It's just like there's text on screen that tells you what's going on. It's beautiful moving images. It seemed to me to be the kind of inspiring story that I'd, I'd seen a fair number of viral uh, social media videos on um, military themes, also disability themes. So I tried it and put it out there. We've gotten more than 10 million views wow. of our, uh, of our uh, social media video between the various places. I also tried to get it out there to um, uh, Facebook pages that specialize in um, feel-good 
uh, in feel-good videos. One of them was called Love What Matters, uh, and they picked it up. And, um, you know, all that I required, they actually recut it a little bit. I'm like, that's great, but just um, put something somewhere that, you know, connects it back. They put something in the comment section, not in the main body, because that messes up Facebook algorithms. There's a whole lot of interesting stuff. But, you know, what does that do for the film? I'm not entirely sure, but it didn't seem like a bad idea. And, you know, all of a sudden we have, you know, we put the film before the film even really comes out where most people can see it. I've got a Facebook page where we've got 4,600, you know, likes and fans. And, you know, so I think there, there, is, an, there is a niche audience um, for most films. You know, there's, you, you, you know, if you're making a film, you know who it's going to appeal to. And, um... I think trying to connect with those people early and like let let them be aware of your film is a good idea. The downside is you start getting barraged by emails like, "How can I see this in Knoxville, Tennessee?" And the answer is kind of like, "You can't." Um, but like, <laughs> you can in you know, a year now, exactly. So now, so I have kept track of all those people, and now as we get ready for our digital distribution to start, I mean, I'm going to see what happens when I email them all the link. Will they all go on and and buy it? I I don't know. I hope so. Yeah, but it's you know you're in a better position than the the film going up online and not having anybody to reach out to exactly you know, you've built this exactly and audience. truthfully it seemed to mean something to my distributor and to their they have salespeople who are trying to get it onto different platforms and are trying to get it good placement on those platforms um and you know my understanding from them is i'm going to be on uh video on demand on you know time warner cox like wow. all, all cable vision like all the major cable places have taken it that now it's not free on those platforms as well as Amazon, iTunes, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and Xbox even like who knew that Xbox you can buy movies on, but we have, there's a whole video gaming subplot of, of, of my film. So apparently they, uh, they're, people are going to be able to watch the film off of Xbox if they pay, you know, three ninety nine or whatever it is to rent it. But I mean, it's a complicated world out there. There are people on the business side who thoroughly understand it. Your audience as filmmakers, just like me, don't really need to understand it thoroughly. All you need to know is like there's stuff going on out there. So try to hook yourself into it because, you know, we have a common interest here in trying to, you know, you're, you're making the, the reason we make movies is for people to watch them. Right. So um, and truthfully, festival audiences while it's great to sit in a festival with a lot of other people like you know it that that's not you're not talking about a huge number of people you know you're talking about a few hundreds of people here and there so you really want to figure out how to break through all the noise and get people watching it whether it's on tv or digitally or on or on when you're playing video games on xbox like or on your phone or wherever like yeah so final piece of advice, just in terms of, again, this career longevity piece that you, you know, you've actually completed and distributed more film, more docs than most doc people I know who will take several years for each project. Um, and, you know, you still seem to have the energy to keep doing it and keep putting out films. So what overall words do you have to share about you know, keeping that enthusiasm up and, and making sure that you always have projects sort of rolling right i mean you know i guess i know a number of people who've made docs even frankly docs that have been more successful than mine have but that have given up pretty quickly because like it's exhausting like it's such a it feels like such an ordeal to like start each project and to get it going and get someone to pay for it and like all through it there's the voices of doubt in your head that are like you know you're going through all this work and you're like but is like I don't even know if it's going to be good because of course when you make a documentary you don't know you can't really know going into it that it's going to be good you have to sort of head fake yourself into some kind of space of positivity the same voice that you would use when you're talking when you're pitching to a funder or to a distributor or a platform of like oh it's gonna be great it's gonna be genius but really like you have to use that to turn that voice back around to yourself and when you leave that meeting tell yourself like you know I don't know for sure but like I think we can do this here like this can this could be good so like you know I mean there's like I actually feel like all of the um I'm an 
adjunct at Columbia J School also. And whenever I'm dealing with in the doc program, I sometimes advise, um, you know, some of the teams that are putting together uh, that are coming putting together docs. And I feel like that job is a lot of it is sort of like psych psychological like it's all it's all kind of therapy and i guess the advice i would give someone that's that's working on making a film or has sort of made two and is then just like trying to get their themselves going to make the third is just to is all kind of psychological it's like you know try to give yourself a little bit of encouragement try to give yourself a break try to figure out like there's a lot of joy in the doing of it, even if it doesn't work out perfectly. Like there's a real, I think there's a real joy in the kind of getting to know the characters and the access you can get to other people's lives and just the perspective you get on the world just from doing the work that we do, never mind whether the film ever gets out. So, um, you know, there's the, I think maybe cliche-ish Wayne Gretzky, uh, quote of like you know you miss 100% of the shots you don't try and I think like giving yourself that message again and again as a documentary filmmaker like I don't know if this is going to work out but like if I don't start trying to get the money for it if I don't start shooting if I don't start looking at the stuff and editing like if I don't at at each stage of the process if you don't move forward then it's definitely not going to work out like so giving yourself like some credit and a pat on the back for getting as far as you get each time and giving yourself a break for your failures and just like that's all part of the experience of life and then we're moving on i feel like this is getting very philosophical for (laughs) for a practical filmmaker advice but but i you know i think the psychology of it is just like you know trying to move forward like at, at at every stage trying to move forward acknowledging to yourself that it's really not that easy. Like, I think people are sometimes get a little flummoxed when they realize how hard parts of this process are um, and try to take from it the parts of it that are really valuable kind of leaving aside outcomes. And if you can kind of keep keep moving positively through all that, then you'll get up and, do, you know, I think... It depends how I count it, but I've made something like 12 films at this point. And like, you know, I'm going through the stage now. I mean, there's one after American Veteran that we're just finishing editing now. And now I'm now I'm looking into what's the next one. And you're like, oh, my God, I have to do this again. And the funding and the whatever and the getting booking of the characters. And whatever, but, you know, but like, I don't know. Let's go. <laughs> this is what I do. So let's move forward and do the next one. Well, I personally find that very inspiring, and I'm sure our listeners will too. So thank you so much. Thank you. This is really fun. Thank you for listening. Cohen's film American Veteran is available on cable VOD and digital, and you can learn about some of her other projects at betterthanfiction.tv. You can hear lots of other fascinating conversations on the art of filmmaking by finding the No Film School podcast in iTunes. Make sure to subscribe there or on your favorite podcast app so that you can catch our Indie Film Weekly News Show, which comes out every Thursday morning and fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. Meanwhile, stay in touch. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at NoFilmSchool. See you on Thursday.